Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, starting in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, which uh, if you need to take a pew Bible, it's on page 810. Here's Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, not a dot. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're all, oh, that's it. Uh, <laughs> the word of the Lord. It was just going so well. We wanted you to keep at it, Brian. Forgive me as you can hear. <clears throat> it's almost gone. So if you're praying people out there to get through this next 28 minutes, it would be great. Um, so uh, years ago, <clears throat> I was traveling in Scotland, of all places, with the uh, son of some of our members here, uh, George and Glenda Keenan, who was working in Scotland as a youth director, Jonathan Keenan. And I remember him picking me up from the airport in Edinburgh, and we were going to the hotel that particular evening when all of a sudden he pulled out into traffic, <clears throat> and I just froze because he was in the wrong lane. <laughs> And I, and I jerked and I sort of jumped a little bit and spent the rest of the ride completely unnerved, not just because it was so opposite of what we're used to here, but also because I did not know how he was able to rewire his brain to think about driving on the opposite side of the road. But we'd all feel that way, right, if we ever go to a country that doesn't drive the way in which we do in America. But by way of a thought experiment this morning, let's just imagine that all of us here in this room this morning decided that we would drive home and just choose to do it on the opposite side of the road, just for fun. What would happen? <laughs> there would be enormous chaos, wouldn't there? You would see conflicts begin to happen. You would not just see emotional clashes, but you'd also see literal clashes going on among people. Well, look, we've dropped ourselves in the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And just like Brian's been saying for the last couple of weeks, when Jesus arrives on the scene, he is immediately identified as peculiar. There's something different about what he's doing. And the reason why is because Jesus is not following any of the accepted social constructs of his day. You think about this? Go back to the Beatitudes at the beginning of our chapter, and you'll find Jesus looks and goes, hey, the blessed people, the happy people, are actually the poor in spirit, not the big, egoed, confident people. Oh, and also the blessed people are those that mourn, not the ones that are perpetually happy, eternally perky. The real blessing actually comes when you exercise mercy to people, not by power grabbing. Oh, and by the way, the people who are persecuted, they're actually more likely to be doing God's will than anybody who's out there just living a comfortable life. In other words, Jesus is starting a movement, right? But he's inviting all the wrong people. This is not the way you do it, Jesus. The people who are attracted to him, you're going to find later, are the marginalized, 
the, the, the sexually alienated, the financially impoverished, the socially outcast. This is no way to start a movement, Jesus. So, of course, like sinners will do, the religious establishment of Jesus' day begins to, begins to write alternative narratives for what Jesus' ministry is really all about. This man, they say, is actually here to overthrow his native-born religion, Judaism. This guy hates our law. There were some people that were basically framing Jesus as a Jewish usurper, a supplanter, someone who is starting something totally new and starting from scratch. And so after introducing these characters that will make up his followers, Jesus offers what I would argue is one of the most theologically pregnant statements you get in the entire book of Matthew about what his purpose and mission is. And it's right there in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Look, what I want to do today is try to make sense out of all of the conflicts that arise in Jesus' earthly ministry by figuring out what he means by that phrase. Actually, let me overstate it. I think what Jesus says here is actually going to encapsulate and frame just about everything else he's going to say throughout the rest of the Gospels, not just in the Sermon on the Mount. It's even going to sort of frame for him the trajectory of his entire ministry. So I want to frame this this morning looking at three things to consider. I want to see, first of all, the clash of authority. We're going to call what, the second one I'm going to call the clash of religious purpose and then end up with a clash in motivation. Let's start with that first one, this question of authority. And really to get this first point, you have to see how it was that Jesus's ministry was received by the people that heard him. If you go over to chapter 7, verse 28, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like one of their scribes. In other words, these people were saying, this is, this is different than what we've normally heard. He's out here talking and walking around kind of like he owns the place. Now, why was this such an important reaction? Well, simply stated, because these, these people that were listening to him, these Jewish people, they already had an authority in their lives. In verse 18, Jesus starts talking about uh, how not one minutia of the law is going to be ignored in his ministry. What does Jesus mean by the law? Well, he means the Hebrew Torah. The Torah to a Jewish person were just those five first books of the Old Testament. So when Jesus is talking about the law, he's talking about all the commands that are contained in those five books. You're familiar, of course, with the top ten. We know the Ten Commandments. But you realize there were plenty more. Someone counted, by the way, there are 613 different commands in the first five books of the Bible. It was a lot. So let's imagine for a second that you're a religious Jew during Jesus' day. Your clergy, you know, minister types, were a group of very careful students that were known as scribes. And the job of these people was to interpret all 613 of these laws into your everyday life, Right? The way you know what your life was supposed to look like is because of what those guys said. They told you. But of course, here's the thing. Jesus comes along and starts talking like his authority is totally independent from the teachers of the Torah. Now, look, before we move on to the rest of what Jesus says, let's pause for a moment and notice Jesus' method, because I think this is important. Because one of the very first things that you get out of just the air that Jesus uh, inhabits 
is that he first challenges your sense of authority and says, you need to understand, my authority of your life is the front gate into the movement that I'm bringing. Because if you really think about it, doesn't everybody sort of function with some kind of authority in their lives? I mean, if you think about it, you have someone or something that you reference as a guide for living. You consult with it when you're, when you're making decisions about what the shape of your life will take, how you're going to come across to people. Uh, it controls your emotional ups and downs, what you will and will not get mad about. It moves almost imperceptibly behind every one of your choices. We all walk around with a functional authority. Could be your parents' approval. Maybe it's the opinion polls. Maybe it's uh, your favorite political pundit on your favorite streaming news service, whatever. But we all have one. We all know that in that moment, we listen for what is right from our authorities. So it's not really fair to sort of breeze past this without sort of talking about generalizing for a moment where our culture has found itself. What is the functioning authority in the early parts of the 21st century in the West these days? Well, who better to ask that question to and to pose for answers than Taylor Swift? <laughs> Pause to take a drink of one's water after saying Taylor Swift. <clears throat> so apparently, last summer, um, Taylor spoke, Taylor, her friends call her Taylor. <laughs> Taylor Swift uh, did the graduation speech at NYU when she uncorked this little nugget. She says this. She says, I know that it can be really overwhelming trying to figure out who to be and who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. She says, I have some good news for you, though. It's totally up to you. And I also have some terrifying news for you. It's totally up to you. And there was a, I thought that was incredibly poignant. It turns out that somebody had tweeted that quote, and a campus minister friend of mine had kind of followed up with another, his own thoughts when he said, you know, that's really a life-crippling dilemma for this generation, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you begin to realize that there is a paralyzing burden of meaninglessness that suddenly comes upon you if you believe that you are the only rule in life. Like that's paralysis. She's right. That is terrifying. Because if all I am is subject to the whims of my feelings, and that's really my only authority in life, there's paralysis that comes there. But on the other hand, there's also a subtle understanding that a self-authored identity is an impossible standard to live with because it's always a moving target, always. But before he died, I've actually got a couple people from my pastor's cohort here in the room, but before he died, my pastor's cohort got to uh, spend some time with Tim Keller as he was talking about this sort of pervasive view in the West of having one's feelings being the only standard in life. And what he said was, he was like, the truth is though, no one can really function that way. In reality, no one really truly believes that our feelings are the final arbiter of identity. So what happens is, is instead of actually allowing everybody to believe whatever they want to believe, which is the way we talked when I was in college, now we've come incredibly legalistic about you accepting my worldview. In other words, this is obviously what cancel culture is all about. We suddenly grow that this, this, this whim inside of me is actually going to be inflicted on others. But here's my point. When Jesus shows up in Matthew talking about his kingdom, he is coming with an air that says, this is not up for debate. 
you have heard it said, but I tell you. In other words, he speaks as if he's subverting any rival authority that might rise up in your heart. I remember I had a conversation with a campus minister years ago who was talking about a, a, a visit that he got from a young man who wanted to talk about um, his struggle with same-sex attraction. And as he began to unpack some of his story to the campus minister, he paused at one moment and said, I, I'm just real nervous right now about how you're hearing from me. I, I, are you going to kick me out of the office or something? And the campus minister said, look, you got to understand something. He goes, I, I'm here to listen right now. Whatever's going on with you, you need to consult Jesus about that. He's the only one who can tell you who you are, sexually speaking. What was he doing? He was pointing back to the authority. So you begin with Jesus' ministry, and you find that there's this clash of authority. But secondly, you see, Jesus also has a clash of what I'm calling a religious purpose. Because here's the problem. Jesus exposes what the scribes are doing by saying what they've done is they've just simply externalized the law. I can't find a better way to say that. And to unpack what Jesus means by that, you've got to go back into the Old Testament, into one of the Old Testament prophets named Jeremiah. In chapter 31, the prophet is issuing these great predictions about God, about what God was doing when he was working in the midst of his people's constant failures to live up to what he wanted them to be. And so what he predicts is, is that there's a coming new relationship, what he calls a covenant, that I'm going to forge, and it's different. Here's what he says in verse 33 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now look, there's four or five different sermons in that one passage, but I just want to make one point from them. Because what Jeremiah is saying is, look, he's not coming in and saying, hey, these rules are really not working out for y'all. Let's just forget them. Let bygones be bygones. No. He's saying, look, the laws are fine. The problem is not with the laws. The problem is that you have been unfaithful to them. But I have good news. God actually is faithful. He is going to come and repair the breaches in the law that you've committed which is amazing to think about because Jeremiah says that God is going to do something that eventually is going to result in him embedding, again, for lack of a better word, to help you internalize his will directly onto the hearts of his people so that obedience to the law is now coming, is going to come, something that's going to come from the inside out rather than being compelled from the outside in. Look, the role that the law used to play in your life is going to be changing, but not the law themselves. This is totally amazing because God is saying, look, eventually you're going to know what to do just because you know me. Because the bond that I'm going to forge with you is going to be based on that relational connection so that eventually your obedience is no longer done out of a duty. It's just a pure expression of what's inside of you. And by the way, it's going to be something that's entirely supernatural because that ain't going to happen unless the Holy Spirit is the one who does it. You're not going to be able to walk around patting yourself on the back and taking credit for what's going on. 
But look, from that vantage point, you can now understand where the rest of Jesus is going in Matthew 5. Because over and over again, he says, look, you have heard it said. And then he starts to address this very superficial way of observing these laws. And of course, six times throughout the examples, he goes through examples of anger. He does one on sex. He talks about greed. And others, he goes to show them exactly what they've done. The one that we read, of course, was about anger. You've heard it said that the, of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Think about it. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how you've grown up. Let's imagine that you've got two acorns, right? You take one acorn and you put it in good soil. You nurture it, you feed it, and it blows up into a giant tree. That's the image of the person who allows their anger to find good soil, <laughs> and it grows up into the fullest, the truest expression of your anger where you actually take the life of another person. Terrible, right? But you have another acorn, <laughs> who is in not so good soil, not taken care of, and it maybe sprouts up a little and then it dies. You see that whether your anger has grown up into the full fire of murder or whether it just sort of spouted out because of some external pressure, it's still the same acorn. That's what Jesus is saying, that when you look at the heart the way that I look at the heart and you see what's going on internally inside the human heart, you'll see there's no difference between those two. And I'm coming to do something different, something that's going to be on the inside. Jesus is saying, your external obedience to the law is never going to work. And by the way, just because you're going through the motions, it doesn't help what I'm trying to fix. Because if you think about it, if you're the person who, let's say, has done fairly well at keeping the law, you've kept your life tidy. You know what that produces in you? It makes you incredibly condescending, incredibly proud, which, by the way, is the very thing that's eroding your relationships. Jesus wants us to bond, and that doesn't happen when there's condescension there. Other people follow with the law in this manner, you know, have the actions of holiness, but they're not anything that's drawing them closer to a relationship with Jesus. But see, that's why Jesus came. That's why he's Emmanuel, God with us. He's moving towards us so that there'll be a relational connection that has its root in the heart, not in jumping through religious hoops. So Jesus came to internalize the law. Hopefully you've heard something like that before. But I do hope it begs the question for you. Well, how in the world is he going to do that? Which brings me to the third point. Because <clears throat> you not only see a clash of religious purpose, you also see a clash of, of motivation. I think this is powerful. Let's go back to that very pregnant phrase. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What does Jesus mean by fulfilling? And how exactly is he going to do that? Again, from Tim Keller. Keller used to talk about it this way. He said, look, how is it that you fulfill a law, any law? Well, there's actually only two ways you can fulfill it. The first way to fulfill the law is to obey, to do what the law says. Or, secondly, you can pay the penalty for any infraction on the law. Let's take, for instance, a stop sign. Happens to be a stop sign right out our south windows right here. I can see it right through our lovely uh, Vitex plants out there. <clears throat> that is a law. You're supposed to stop at that stop sign. So how do I fulfill that law? Well, answer number one, stop before you go out. Law fulfilled, right? But let's say, for instance, that you choose for whatever reason not to stop. You're going to ignore the stop sign. It goes zipping right on through it. 
then we can look and say, well, now you have a problem, <laughs> right? Because what happens is you're going to get a ticket. Officer Ivy is out there. He'll watch you enough times, and eventually you're going to have a ticket, and you can't be in a right stead with the law until you pay that fine because you can't really ultimately ignore it, can you? But either way, whether the law is obeyed or whether it is sinned against and then paid a penalty for, that's the only way the law can be fulfilled. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And of course, he knows this all beforehand, but he's only slowly kind of leaking out his meaning because he knows what he's come to do. He knows that his purpose is to come and be, as it were, a stand-in for the entire nation, the entire national history of Israel, his people. Except this time, he's going to do it right. Not one infraction, not one miss, not one problem. He keeps all the law perfectly. It's exactly what Brian was talking about last week when he goes up to meet John the Baptist and he wants to be baptized and it freaks John the Baptist out. He's like, uh, you should baptize me, not the other way around. And Jesus says, no, suffice it for now in order that it is to what? Fulfill, there's that word again, all righteousness. He knows what he's doing. He's aware of what he's doing. But he's also going to do something <coughs> that, if you think about it, was predicted all the way back in the early parts of Genesis. Because if you go back to the, the ancient uh, father, Abraham, who apparently had many sons, according to our children's ministry. You go back to Father Abraham in Genesis 15, and there's this weird experience where God calls Abraham out because he's doubting. He's doubting God's purposes in his life. And so he takes him out and puts him into this vision state where this sort of smoldering, burning vision of God begins to pass through two broken pieces of a sacrifice. And the message, of course, that we said, we actually studied this uh, last fall, is God saying, look, Abraham, you can understand my absolute commitment to you only in this way by you first understanding that I am not only going to fulfill my side of this covenant, I'm going to fulfill your side as well. I'm not just going to do the things that it takes to do perfectly, to live this perfect life. I'm also going to take all of your infractions. I'm going to take this big stack of tickets <laughs> that you have piled up in your life and I'm going to pay for those as well. This is what the cross is all about. Jesus keeping the law perfectly and paying the tickets. And here is the point of what he's saying. When you and I begin to take that act in, it's the best way I know how to put it this morning. When we take that in, the Holy Spirit will come in and light up our hearts with it in this particular way. Think about what that means. When all of a sudden I find out that God has forgiven me as much as he has, how is it possible that I can be as petty as I can be with my anger? Do you see how him forgiving me much begins to slowly erode at my anger? Why, why am I angry? Who am I to do that? It also, does, it also comes to you and it says, look, you are more secure than you could ever imagine in my love for you. So why is it that in your ex expressions of sexual love for others, you're being so selfish in your taking? Why are you allowing your lust to drive you? And when the gospel gets in, we're like, yeah, what am I doing? Or, I have now been accepted by the one who owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Why am I hoarding my money? It's all a gift from him anyway. I earned what I got. You grew up in the right environment. 
It's all a gift. Do you see how? This is what I'm talking about. And you know what? What is happening in that moment when those little realizations begin to pop into my head is Jesus is fulfilling the law in you. Or if you put it in Jeremiah's term, he's writing the law on your heart. He's turning it into something internal. So a couple of years ago, uh, two years ago almost, I had to do the, uh, the funeral of my brother-in-law. And he was such a good man. I just want people to know how good my, father, my brother-in-law was. He was, a, he was a very sweet husband to my sister and a great father to my niece and nephew. But I chose as the text at his funeral to preach through 1 Corinthians 15, 55, a phrase you're probably familiar with when it said, but Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? You know, oh, um, uh, uh, oh, death, where is your victory? And my guess is you've heard that before. What we oftentimes don't hear is what Paul says right after that when he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is. What do you think Paul's going to say there, by the way, if you've never heard that verse? You know, the sting, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is to really mess up people's lives. No. That's not what it says. It says the sting of death is sin, but the power of death is the law. What? Okay, bear with me. Let's all go back to junior high algebra for a second, all right? My, my math teaching wife is going to be very proud of me for about 30 seconds. I don't get much uh, <laughs> otherwise. I'm kidding. Um, do you remember from, from algebra when you learned uh, the transitive principle? Remember transitive principle? Okay, here it goes. If A equals B and B equals C, then A has to equal C. Got it? Transitive principle. That is Paul's phrase, right? For the power, how does he put it? Let me sure I get this right. For the, the, the sting of death is the sin, and the power of sin is the law. Therefore, the problem with death is the law. That's what Paul is saying, and I find this absolutely fascinating. The reason why we fear death the way in which we do has something to do with our relationship to the law. And I wish I had more time. I didn't have time in the first service. I may do it right now. I might regret this. Think about the problem. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that it's the fear of death that is wreaking havoc in your life. Think about this for a second. And I've been thinking lately about bucket lists. Bear with me for a second. I don't think bucket lists are biblical. Bear with me. Think about what, you, what we say to ourselves is like, well, I just want to make sure that before I kick the bucket, I get to do X, Y, and Z. Think about that for a second. Does that not assume that this is all I have? Doesn't that also assume that when I get to heaven, anything that I really enjoy here is gone? Do you see, you see how... See how that is? Do we, do we, when did we not, when did we stop thinking that the earthly joys I have are not crushed in heavens, but they're fulfilled? So that whatever brought me joy here is infinite joy there. So, even, so what happens? Because I fear death, what do I do with my life? I'm oftentimes reckless. Or maybe I'm dismissive. Or maybe I'm depressed. You know, at age 55, I, I, I thought about this while we were traveling. I don't think I'll ever skydive. It's not going to do it. But that's weird, right? When you think about being in an age where like, yeah, I'll probably never visit Botswana or something. I don't know. But don't you see the anxiety that's left out there by the fear of death? No, you don't have to be in your 80s and 90s to fear death. I promise you it's out there. 
But Paul can speak confidently because he says, look, the reason why the fear of death hangs, the reason why we're so anxious to make sure we do what we want to do before we die, is because of our relationship to the law. The power of sin is the law. But the point is, Paul looks and says, I'm trying to force upon you what Jesus is trying to force on you. It's like, look, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you don't have a chance to get in the kingdom of heaven. Which the first time you read, you were like, huh, new thing to be depressed about today, I guess, after reading the Bible. But notice what he's doing. What's he saying there? What he's saying is, of course your righteousness will exceed it. You want to know why? Because the Pharisees and the scribes, it's only skin deep. It's utterly superficial. I'm talking about actually taking forgiveness inside of you. And the more that you take that inside of you and the Holy Spirit begins to light it up, suddenly you begin to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Why? Because it's got integrity. Because it's an expression of who you really are. Let me finish with this. Imagine that you play a musical instrument. I bet if you talk to the people that are mildly musical and play an instrument that it started the same way it does with most of us you had an instrument and you decided to do the scales da, 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 da. you played it over and over and over again but then one day maybe it was one day maybe it was a month maybe it was a week suddenly something happened you stepped into the freedom of your instrument and suddenly I wasn't just playing the scales music started coming out harmony started coming out this is what Jesus is describing. Because if you look at what we do on Sunday mornings, it's kind of like every Sunday we, we gather together so we can put on a little forgiveness party. <laughs> and here, as we gather together and remind ourselves of exactly who Jesus was and what he did, he begins to sort of work in on my heart. And I begin to do that math of being like, why am I so petty? Why, why is my lust so uncontrollable? Why, why am I so greedy? He begins to erode those things away. And all of a sudden we walk away and we suddenly realize this. He is fulfilling the law in you. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it in you. I came to write it on your heart. So that you can say, like we sang this morning, that to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child. In duty and to choice. That's Jesus' mission. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let us step up into that, that mission by praying, hearing, singing, swimming in this great act of your cross. So that we might see in new ways, Father, that we, that we might stop working just on scales. <laughs> we might step up into the music. We might hear the harmony of what it means for us to live according to your law, that we might love your law as a way of loving you and a way of drawing closer to you. Would you help us to do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.